The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. In the last Douglas Teal episode, I talked about how Doug died and how many of the facts surrounding the case just didn't make much sense. I'm going to begin this episode by reviewing some of that content. But before we review it, I really should let you know, and I really should have issued this warning before the last episode too, that we're going to be getting into some graphic descriptions here. And I would never include such descriptions for the shock value of it, but some of these descriptions are necessary as we examine Doug's cause of death as we dive into other possibilities of how he died. I'd also like to mention that we're going to be dropping some names in this episode, names of people who have been looked at as part of the investigation. Now, no charges have been filed in this case against anyone. And everyone mentioned here is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But we are going to review some investigative documents and see what people were saying. We're also going to let Karen get into some of the things that she has discovered in her journey. Doug was killed on July 15, 2010. The story is that he was struck by a car just before 4 a.m. A woman was charged with, but not convicted of, leaving the scene of an accident. But it's always been reported that Doug just died as a result of this collision. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Doug wasn't walking. He didn't step out in front of a car. He wasn't struck on the shoulder of the road from a driver who was not paying attention. Doug was lying in the middle of the lane of Highway 72, just outside of Fredericktown, Missouri, in Madison County. Now, last episode, we talked about how the driver of the car, a woman who we are calling Christy, swerved to her left, saying she had struck Doug's head. It was a steamy, foggy morning and it was still dark outside. Christy swerved in an attempt to miss the body in the road. I mean, it happened in an instant, a fraction of a second. The impact jolted Christy's boyfriend awake. He was riding shotgun, and he would later confirm what Christy eventually told police. But Christy didn't immediately phone the police. Her boyfriend had convinced her that it wasn't a person. It was probably a deer or a dog. And she continued on to Walmart, where her boyfriend would meet his carpool buddy to go drive up to his job in St. Louis. Now, when Christy was returning home, she saw Doug's body in the highway. It was just a few minutes later, and the the sight confirmed her fears. She called her boyfriend. Her boyfriend said, you need to, you know, call 911, and she did. But she didn't tell dispatchers that she had hit the body, only that there was one in the road. And three days later, into this investigation, she confessed to Madison County Sheriff's Department that she had struck the body. And so authorities inspected her car and they found tissue and hair evidence. And all of that was collected. We also reported that when the medical examiner did an autopsy, he did an external review first. right? So he's just looking at the body as it is. And, and there were obvious injuries and trauma to the head and neck area. But there was no obvious external damage to the rest of Doug's body. But when he examined Doug's internal organs, he opened him up, he found a cracked sternum, he found three broken ribs, and internal bleeding that at least contributed to Doug's death. So my question when reviewing the evidence of this autopsy is, why did Doug's abdomen not show obvious damage from the external review? The evidence showed that Doug's head was struck by Christie's tire. I mean, it was obvious. And if no other motorists had indicated that they also struck Doug's body, then how did Doug wind up with broken ribs and a broken sternum and lacerated organs with internal bleeding? And that's why I kept making a big deal out of how she swerved left. Christie didn't hit the rest of Doug's body. 
We also went over how there were witness descriptions of seeing Doug walking or hitchhiking that night. And those descriptions seem to indicate that he might have been moving away from home rather than to it. To review quickly, around 1.45 that morning, Doug left his friend George Anderson's house, which according to Google is about six miles away from his house. So Doug's friend George Anderson told investigators that he told Doug he didn't have enough gas to drive him home and back. A text by Anderson after Doug had started to walk home indicated that his friend was not angry with Doug, but he was angry about his gas tank. Doug responded saying, in effect, no worries, just bring my knife set with you next time we see each other. I mean, there's no documents that have confirmed that there was a problem with the gas tank. I'm, you know, that's not a knock, but there's just no way of confirming that. At any rate, Doug began walking at 1.45 a.m. He was in good shape. He walked into town several miles, quite a lot, a few times a week maybe. And at a casual walk, Doug should have been home around 3.45, about two hours. He shouldn't have been struck at roughly a, a midway point between Anderson's house and his own house. And in addition to the physical evidence about the ribs and the sternum and the internal organs, we also have statements from people saying that Doug was having or, or had uh, some sort of riff with some people. So Doug's brother was one of the four witnesses, four of them, to report an alleged dispute that Doug had with a man named Fred Wood, known by some as Fred Darnell. And the dispute was allegedly over, over girls that Doug had dated that had also previously dated Fred Wood. Wood denied those allegations and reports to police, and we're going to get into that here in a minute. Wood was also upset and distraught by the allegations. And he also had an alibi. So the investigation kind of came to a halt. And police ended up going after Christie on the hit and run charges. Now all along, Doug's mother, Karen Langston, has never bought that her son laid down and passed out in the middle of the highway. I mean, that would appear to be some sort of suicide attempt. An odd one. And Doug just had a good day at work. He had been talking to a new girlfriend on the phone. The text show that that was, you know, a positive uh, engagement there. You know, things were looking up. And while it's true you never know what's going on inside someone's head, suicide just doesn't make much sense. And again, Doug wasn't moving when he was hit. He was lying down. And that's not just based on Christie's statements. Had he been standing when he was hit, his legs would have been broken. And again, Doug had no alcohol or hard drugs in his system, only marijuana. So a drug overdose seems an unlikely cause here to pass out on the highway. So the questions are, how did Doug die? How did he wind up in the middle of the road on a hot summer night? And how can his broken ribs and lacerated organs be explained? Karen Langston hasn't given up on the idea that her son was beaten to death and left in the road as a way to cover up his beating. And if she's right, then Doug's killer, or killers, were successful. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Lewis, I'm going to tell you something, you know, um... My son, uh, I said, there's a reason to investigate this. I said, I'm going to prove to you that, you know, my son was not only killed, but that it was murder. I said, um, I said, this is foul play all the way, and I'm going to prove to you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Well, I mean, right away, my heart just dropped, you know, 
because I knew when it's just like seeing the army guys when they show up and you have a you know you know a member in the service you know that it's bad news. Well, when she showed up with the coroner, being a small town and stuff, you know, I knew the coroner and and everything and uh knew Becky, and it's Rebecca McFarland, but she goes by Becky and uh, but she said that, you know she wanted to know Karen when's the last time you seen Doug and it really upset me because I just. I have a bad illness. I have narcolepsy with cataplexy. Cataplexy is your central nervous system. I just collapsed right where I stood and started crying. And I said, Becky, is my son dead? She said, did he have any identifying tattoos? And I said, Becky, is my son dead? And she said, yeah, Karen said it was just a freak accident. Um, He was on the road, got hit by a car. Uh, There's no foul play involved. And I just couldn't believe she could say that when his body wasn't even cold yet. The coroner proceeded to say, now this is 7.20 in the morning. It's already all over the internet. Everybody in town is already, you know, passing word and advice and everything on it when the family hasn't even found out yet. I mean, that's that was very disturbing, too. What happened to, you know, telling the family first? Yeah. But anyway, the coroner speaks up and he said that Doug's body was already down and expired before a car hit him. And I just turned to Becky. I said, do you hear that? I said, that's foul play. You know, I said, not only is it foul play, but it's murder. And I told her that these boys had threatened Doug and and that uh, uh, over girls his age and that they were much older and blah, blah, blah. But she didn't seem that concerned. Her in the corner left. Okay, so let me let me just pause it there. <laughs> Take a breath here. So. The coroner and the. Uh, the police officer Rebecca McFarland come to your house. I I can understand you find a body on the road. I can understand that your first inclination is they've been hit. I'm not going to fault anybody for that. But what the coroner said is he was dead before he was hit. Exactly. Yeah. He said his body was down and expired before a vehicle hit him. Did, did he give you any reason why he thought that, or is it just a kind of a fleeting statement? Um, no, he, he didn't say, but what's really strange is um, this corner, Chris Follis, he owns the Follis Funeral Home, and he just seemed like the most honest little old man I'd ever talked to. I went, as the family gathered, and uh, we went straight to the funeral home, and I wanted him to repeat what he said to me to the family to make sure that I didn't just, you know, totally go blank because I mean, once I found out my son was dead, I was numb. I just, I mean, I just could not believe this mm-hmm. and uh, 19 years old, healthy as could be. And bam, you know, hit by a car. No, I mean, Doug's gone to and from town and, and walked and been everywhere. There's no way that Doug would be in the road for a car to hit him unless there was, you know, a freak accident. So, we stopped there and the coroner told about 15 or better family members that yes, Doug's body was down and expired before the vehicle hit him. So that's what, you know, I wanted to make sure I heard that clearly. We get back in our vehicles. We go over to the sheriff's department. Well, he's just got his feet up on the desk and he's got his arms back behind his head and he's just in comfortable as can be. And he just tells me that, you know, him and Detective McFarland already canvassed the area and, and that there's just no signs of any foul play anywhere. And that uh, I said, but Lewis, I said, what about what the coroner said that, you know, why would my son be in the road, you know, if there wasn't more of a reason? He said, well, Karen, that's a possibility. Maybe he got tired and laid down and took a nap. These things happen. As I indicated in the last episode, Karen Langston believes Doug's death, or at least the reasons for why his death was not thoroughly investigated as a homicide, has to do with conspiracy involving law enforcement. 
I'm not ruling that out, but at the same time, I cannot confirm much of that. But I want to talk about where that conspiracy theory kind of starts, at least according to Karen. Several days, maybe a couple of weeks before he died, Doug's cell phone was confiscated. Karen said Doug had received some sexting images from a girl who may have been underage. Karen said the images were unsolicited, yet his phone was confiscated by police. A week before Doug was killed, Karen said Doug went into the sheriff's office to retrieve his phone. She said nothing came of the investigation. Doug was not charged, but he did not receive his phone that day, she said. Karen told me Doug told her he overheard a conversation at the sheriff's department. I'm not going to share the contents of that conversation. I just don't know how in the world I could confirm it um, when a dead person overheard something in the sheriff's department and then passed it along to family members. But because of this and other things that Karen has heard, she believes that Doug's case was intentionally not handled properly by the sheriff at the time, who was David Lewis, and his detective, Rebecca McFarland. All I know is what the evidence shows. And the evidence seems to indicate that Doug had sustained injuries before he was hit by that car. The evidence seems to indicate that there was not enough evidence to convict the woman we're calling Christy with a hit-and-run felony. The evidence seems to indicate that Karen's safety and freedom were threatened in the years following her son's death. But at the same time, the documents also show that Detective McFarland did not ignore the tips regarding a potential homicide. She did, in fact, interview the person of interest and checked on his alibis. So based on the files I've looked at, you can look at this case and think, yeah, I can see why they charged They hit and run. It's a borderline case for sure. But you can look at this case and say, you know, Detective McFarland gave it a shot. You can look at this case and say, what else could law enforcement have done back in 2010? But you can also look at this case and say, no, this case doesn't make sense. You can look at this case and say, is one alibi, a girlfriend of a suspect, enough to really close down an investigation? You can look at this case and wonder, why did no one write in a report that these other injuries don't make sense? You can look at this case and wonder, why hasn't more been done? I noted in the last episode that the current sheriff, Katie McCutcheon, did not send over all the documents relating to Doug's death. I knew other documents existed. So I asked for McCutcheon to review the file again and send me all the files. And so she sent me 45 more pages of documents. She also sent me this message. Quote, it should be noted that shortly after I took office in January 2017, Karen Langston asked if I could read over Doug Teal's report. After an extensive search of the sheriff's office, I was unable to locate the report and requested a copy of the report from the prosecuting attorney. I did as instructed and read over the report, but due to no new allegations, the case was not further investigated. These 66 pages plus the PC statement and evidence chain of custody pages I have already submitted to you are all the pages in the file that I have. If there were other reports, narratives, or notes included in this report, I do not possess them considering I do not possess the original file." Unquote. So I think it's interesting that the report was not retained by the previous sheriff, or at least could not be found by the current one. I also find it interesting that Sheriff McCutcheon said the case was not further investigated due to, quote, no new allegations, unquote. So she got the files from the prosecuting attorney's office. I do not understand why the file was not in possession of the sheriff's department. my gosh, I'm crying my heart out. My whole family just went silent. They couldn't believe that he just said to us what he said. Okay, but so in a matter so in a matter of hours, you go from corner saying that he'd already expired before he was hit, and you gave the information that he had been threatened. 
So this is all right, happening. Right. This is all happening before 8 a.m. And then right. within a matter of hours at the sheriff's department, it's, oh, there's no foul play. Right. And he didn't see any reason to investigate. And I said, Lewis, I'm going to tell you something, you know, um, <laughs> my son, uh, I said, there's a reason to investigate this. I said, I'm going to prove to you that, you know, my son was not only killed, but that it was murder. I said, um, you know, my son didn't just with, uh, no foul play. I said, this is foul play all the way. And I'm going to prove to you. So he assigned uh, Detective Rebecca McFarland to the case. And I said, excuse me, what are you talking about? He said, I said, I thought you said, you know, there should be no investigation, that there's no foul play, no case. He said, no, but since you believe that there is, he said, I, I have to case out of it. I don't know it all because uh, I would go in there once a week and check in with her, trying not to be a nuisance or anything and the file laid right where it was when uh, I seen her lay it down and it stayed there until each week I would come in um she might pick it up but no nothing was the case was not being investigated it wasn't being looked into I now I, I was taking we found a piece of t-shirt out on the highway right by where his body was laying oh the sheriff said he's seen it that you know that's nothing so I was keeping different evidence I was coming up with because he didn't, you know, want to take the t-shirt or anything. So there was already people calling us and just texting us galore, telling us, you know, that, that these bullies killed him. So what do the new documents contain? Well, we have a lot more details, but no big revelations. We have the exact wording from the text messages. And it turns out that Doug was texting three people that night, not two. One was a new girlfriend named Caitlin. Another was a co-worker named Amber. And the third was George Anderson. He's the friend he had been driving around with all day, the co-worker, and the last person to admit seeing Doug alive. So first, I'm going to read the text message exchanges between Doug and his newish girlfriend, Caitlin. She was 18 years old at the time. 12.30 a.m. from Doug to Caitlin. Sorry, he's super pissed. 12.32, Caitlin responds. Aw, oh, what's wrong? 12.32, Doug says, I don't know, he's super mad and won't explain why. 12.35, Caitlin Aw, oh, well, I sorry. 12.34, Doug, not your fault. 12.36, Caitlin, I know, I just don't want him stressed. 12.37, Doug, me either, for real, I hate it. 12.39, Caitlin responds, seriously, that crazy, are you almost home? 12.39, Doug, yeah, we just got past Park Hills, so maybe 30 minutes, maybe. 12.42, Caitlin, God, I hope I can stay up this late. 12.49, Doug, LOL, I hope you can too. 12.50, Doug, do it, LOL. 12.51, Caitlin, I'm a try. 12.52, Doug, to do what? 12.53, Caitlin, don't you think we're rushing a little bit to do it? Ha ha ha, JK. It, silly. So that was Caitlin kind of making a joke. Doug saying do it. She's like trying to make a kind of a sexual innuendo joke. And that was the last communication for another 20 minutes. Then it resumes at 1.15. Doug sends a text. Did you seriously just use the I'm alone in my bed big tease line on me? Caitlin responds two minutes later. Yeah, and guess what? It got you thinking about it. So I guess I did my part. Doug responds. Oh, and why? Was that the desired effect? At 119, she responds with a sexually suggestive text that I'm not going to read here. Four minutes later, she sends another text. What? No reply to that? Then he responds at 126. Oh, you could have taken care of that with me on the phone. 
So that was at 1.26 a.m. Then the conversation switches over to Amber. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's no more conversation between Doug and Caitlin for 26 minutes there. But according to a handwritten report by Caitlin, um, quote, he then called me and we were just talking normal. Then I heard George and his sister get into an argument and Doug being stubborn as he normally was said he was going to walk home. So him and I were talking while he was walking, but after a while his phone shut off so I assumed his battery died, which it had. So at 1.52, Caitlin texts again, battery die. Six minutes later at 1.58, yeah, it'll last for a bit for text. At 2 o'clock, Caitlin sends a text, just text when you're home, need it for light. Okay, so that's the full text of the conversation between Doug and his new girlfriend, Caitlin. It started about 12.30 a.m., and it lasted until the last text from her at 2 a.m. At 12.50, Doug sent a text to this girl named Amber. And I was able to get a hold of Amber. She doesn't remember anything about that night, nor the text conversations. But she was kind of blown away when I told her that I was investigating whether Doug was killed before he was struck by the car. But here's the text that Doug sent. Again, this was 12.50 a.m. I guess I'm supposed to text and see if you want me to stay with you. Amber did not respond right away. She responded 38 minutes later. She said, did you make it? Doug says, yeah. Amber says, okay, good deal. Then a a bit later, 13 minutes later, are you guys coming this way before the meeting? Doug says, yeah. Amber says, can you grab me? Doug says, yes. 143, Amber says, you're awesome. Thank you. I'm so mad I just hung up and not going to worry about it because I feel like I'm in the wrong with you two. So I have no idea, neither does Amber, of who was mad and who she was in the wrong with. Could find no report where a law enforcement officer talked with Amber. So what do we make of this conversation with Amber? Doug and George Anderson were together with Amber earlier that night at Applebee's and apparently took her home. And then they were there for about 20 minutes. And then about an hour later, Doug sends a text about asking to stay with her. And Amber doesn't respond right away. And then she adds the fact that she was in the wrong with those two. So I'm not sure what all this is about. I do think it's a bit of an oversight, though, for law enforcement not to interview her. Partly because we have discrepancies of when exactly George and Doug arrived at George Anderson's house. I mean, George's alibis say it was around 1230, but other reports say it was 130. You know, so we've got all of these reports. I'm not exactly sure what happened. George, George Anderson says that he and Doug dropped off Amber at her house in Park Hills after leaving Applebee's around 1130. Second report said they stayed at Amber's for another 20 minutes, which would have been around 1150. Then they drove back to the Vector Marketing office to help another co-worker start her truck. So, I think it's a safe bet that they arrived to Fredericktown sometime before 127 because that's when Doug confirmed to Amber that they had made it. But again, George Anderson's alibi stated that he arrived somewhere around 1230 in their reports. But sometime before 1230, which is, I guess, about the time they left Park Hills, maybe they were in the parking lot at that time helping the girl get the car started. Um, Doug expressed to his new girlfriend, Caitlin, that George Anderson was super pissed about something, but he didn't know what. Amber says she doesn't remember any of this. So then we have this text at 1250, and it's Doug telling Amber that he's supposed to ask if he can stay with Amber. And I'm not sure what this implies. 
Doug had his work clothes with him in George Anderson's car. I don't know if something happened while they were there trying to get the car started. But an hour after they left Amber's house, Doug was asking if Amber would allow him to stay with her. And this was happening in the middle of him texting Caitlin. When, in fact, Caitlin was getting very flirtatious with her messages. According to Doug's text with Caitlin, Doug would have been about 20 minutes from Fredericktown at this point. So obviously we're missing context. I'm guessing other conversations were going on outside of this text. I don't know what to make of Amber and why he was asking to stay with her. I don't know what happened at that parking lot. I don't know why George Anderson was mad. But this was before the, the gas situation for sure. But Doug said in his text that he was about 30 minutes from the Anderson's house around 1240, which would have put them there around 110. So 110, 115 is probably about the time that they got there. That's my best guess. It is a safe bet that Doug left George Anderson's place around 145. So everything that George's mother, sister, and aunt talked about happened within 35 minutes. Doug comes in, he grabs a drink of Kool-Aid from the fridge. George Anderson asks his family members if they'd help push one of their cars to the streetlight so he could work on it and get it started. Doug gets on the phone with Caitlin sometime around 1.30. Caitlin overhears it arguing about the car. And I assume George Anderson wants to get the car started to take Doug home, but that's not explicitly stated in any report. Anyway, around 1.45 a.m., Doug says, screw it. I'm not waiting around for this. I'll walk home. So now that kind of gets us into this conversation, this text conversation that Doug has with George Anderson. So Doug starts walking home. So the first text from George Anderson comes in at 57. Hey, I'm not mad at you. I'm frustrated at my gas tank and I got way mad, you know. At 157, Doug immediately replies, It's okay, just bring kit tomorrow. He's talking about his, his knife kit. At 2 o'clock, three minutes later, George Anderson replies, I won't be able to make it to the office in the morning because I'm going to bed and getting an early start on destroying that damn car. I done took my truck and rammed the sack of shit. There's no reply from Doug. 11 minutes after that, 2.11, George Anderson says, So uh, when do you absolutely need your kit? There's no reply from that. Not a, I don't know why. It could be because the, the phone has gone completely dead. It could be for other reasons. 12.43, again, this is, uh, what, 32 minutes after the previous message. Are you okay? 2.43 a.m. George Anderson has sent his last message to Doug Teal. Karen has this theory that at some point in the evening, especially when Doug was giving one-word answers, that Doug's attacker or attackers uh, may have taken his phone and, and were responding in his place. If that were the case, however, that would mean that some of Doug's texts to Caitlin would have also been sent by the attacker or attackers. So I thought I'd break down all the texts that Doug sent after getting off the phone with Caitlin. These are the responses. One, yeah, it'll last for a bit for text. That was in response to Caitlin asking about the battery dying. And then the next three were yeah, yeah, yes, 
And then the last one was, it's okay, just bring Kit tomorrow. That was in response to George Anderson. So I'm not sure about this theory uh, that Karen has about uh, the attackers maybe responding on his phone. If Doug was walking, he was not likely to also be sending lengthy text messages. Um, I think it's probably more common if you're on the move that you're going to just reply one word. But I'm not sure about that one way or the other. So like I said, I'm not sure the extra records provide any revelations, but certainly they pique my interest. Uh, we have an hour discrepancy between George Anderson and his alibi statements as to when they arrived at the house. We have no interview report from Amber, whose house they'd stopped at after leaving Applebee's. And then there's the information that would infer that George Anderson was angry about something long before the, the car incident at the home, before Doug took off walking. Unfortunately, the files don't include anything before 12.30 a.m. And if I were doing an investigation with a suspicious death, I'd want to see more, I think. Especially if this Fred Wood was allegedly telling people he'd do to them like he did to Doug. I'd want to review Wood's texts and go back into Doug's texts for weeks, if not months, at least to the time that this relationship that took place between this woman they may have had a beef over. Doug was a ladies' man, there's no doubt about it, and I think there are I think there were probably several rivals in his orbit who might have been angry with him. But the only name that popped up during the investigation was Fred Wood. And it's tough to look at Wood when his girlfriend gave him an alibi. And George Anderson had three of them. The new files I received also included a report from Sheriff David Lewis. So we're going to rewind here and go back to the, the day of the collision. Um, Lewis arrived on the scene about 4.25 a.m. The location of Doug's body on Highway 72 was 1.9 miles west of U.S. Highway 67 overpass. Lewis asked two officers already on the scene, and that was Deputy Lucas Nicholson and Fredericktown City Officer Lacey Ramirez, to go to the entrance of County Road 504 to divert the traffic around the scene. The body was found 451 yards from County Road 504, right in front of a personal driveway not far from the Elks Lodge. Sheriff Lewis noted that Doug was lying on the eastbound side of the roadway, feet facing south and head facing north, just like the driver of the car had described. He said the victim's clothing did not appear to have blood on them, which I found kind of interesting, kind of going back to the idea that where are these other injuries coming from? Doug was wearing a black t-shirt, blue jeans, and brown shoes. He was wearing a wristwatch. He provided measurements where tissue could be seen on the roadway. He made seven markers, which were photographed by Detective McFarland. He saw no skid marks. He said the coroner did an initial survey of the scene and moved the body to his office for further investigation. Another report that I've referred to previously noted the locations on Christie's car that contained what appeared to be tissue and hair. They were found near the front and rear wheels. Now let's move on to the interview that Detective Rebecca McFarland did with Fred Wood. Remember, four people came forward to say that Doug had some sort of beef with Wood over girlfriends or former girlfriends. I'm going to read directly from the report, at least big chunks of it. This is what the interview report says. Wood came into the office voluntarily. The interview was recorded in its entirety. And then McFarland read him his Miranda warnings and he agreed to speak. The report goes on, quote, Wood was extremely upset and emotional. Wood stated he was upset over all the rumors being spread over town about him and the statement about him on Fredericktown Topics. If you recall, Topics was a, an internet forum that was popular, lots of gossip that would go on um, several years ago. It was later shut down because they couldn't control all of the lawsuits and so forth that spawned from that. Again, back to the report. Quote, Wood stated he knew who Douglas Teal was, but did not have close personal contact with him. 
Woods stated he was not sure he had ever personally spoken to Teal. Woods stated that he had seen Teal a couple of times while visiting a relative who lives beside Teal's mother. Woods stated he had not seen Teal in approximately six to seven months. Wood denied that he had any previous conflicts with Teal and denied that he had ever threatened to kill him directly or indirectly. Wood stated that Teal had dated his ex-girlfriend Rachel Browers. Wood stated that when Teal was dating Browers, he had ended the relationship with her and did not have a problem with Teal dating Browers. Wood stated that he has had many girlfriends in the past whom often feud over him. Wood stated these women liked to start rumors about him and liked to cause conflict between one another. Wood denied that he had any contact with Teal the previous week. Wood stated that on Wednesday, July 14, 2010, he was at his girlfriend's residence. His girlfriend is Amelia Umfleet. He stated that Amelia's sister was also present in the household. Wood stated that he and Amelia left the household between 11 a.m. and noon to get a soda at Bosley's convenience store. They returned to Amelia's residence and stayed there for the rest of the day. Wood stated that they watched television and browsed the internet. Wood stated that Amelia's sister's boyfriend may have come by Amelia's house that day as well. Wood stated that they went to bed around 1 a.m. on 7-15-10 and got back up around 11 a.m. on July 15th. I asked Wood about the incident that occurred on July 18th, 2010. Fredericktown Police Department responded to a disturbance at 110 West College in which Wood was arrested. A statement was gained during this investigation that indicated Wood had made a statement. According to the witness statement, quote, I'm going to smash your head in just like I did Doug's, unquote. Wood stated that he was extremely depressed and upset about everyone making statements about him. Wood stated that on July 18, 2010, he had ingested approximately 50 unknown prescription pills. Wood stated he thought he saw who he thought was starting some of the rumors about him and went after him. However, Wood stated that it was not the person he thought it was. I'm leaving out this person's name, by the way. Wood stated that he was not in a good frame of mind, but could remember his actions. That's pretty much the report from Fred Wood. Again, Amelia Umfleet and her sister both provided alibi statements to Detective McFarland. I would like to point out that the statement that was quoted here, I'm going to smash your head in just like Doug's, if the theory is correct that he was beaten before put out in the road, theory is, is that he was beaten in the abdomen area, caused this internal bleeding, that causes death, and then the car actually did hit his head. As far as hiring a lawyer and going to court over this phone incident, well, Doug was, you know, pretty well proven uh, not guilty, but he was told that he was going to be on supervision and he wouldn't have any girls um, under mom's age, I think is what the judge said that day. I don't know. But he said, you know, you're not to have any young girls on your phone temporarily, blah, blah, blah. So Doug was, you know, OK with that. And like I said, we had a lawyer and everything at the time. Um, we were very curious because that had just quit, uh, I believe it was June 28th, I think was the court date or whatever, and by July 15th, he's dead. So we thought that there was a connection there. Doug was pretty well crucified. The night that he did die, uh, he was taken around for two hours. He was taken around and used for an example uh, what would happen to him, what would happen to others if they didn't do what they were supposed to or didn't do what these guys said. And they took him to several places. They had him at um, James Wade's house. They had him at several different drug cartels and several different people clubbed him. And they kept him alive just long enough to take him somewhere else and club him again. I mean, the next morning, the police station was packed with witnesses. And every one of them, we were told, was hearsay or the ones that pursued it that wanted to prove it wasn't hearsay were threatened. Um, and their stories never, anybody that filled out a statement 
it, it never made it to the prosecutor's office. It never made it past the sheriff's office. They were so, just like. So have people told you that they saw Doug that night getting the crap knocked out of him? Have yes. People, people have told you that, that they saw that happen. Right. And. Okay. Uh, I mean, there are even people that would still come forth, but there's no reason for them to. There is nobody that to tell that won't make yeah. them wind up dead. Uh, and and these witnesses saw this happening at multiple locations. That's what you're telling me, right? Yeah. So a party here and a party there, and they just kept beating him up and, and making, in, in your words, making an example of him. Um, exactly. Which, which would imply that he's that Doug has done something wrong and he is paying the price. So everyone who sees this, this is what's going to happen to you if you also do the same thing. So is that kind of what you, how you see it? That's correct. And it always seemed to be over girls. Yeah. And the reason I know he hopped right in with them was, okay, I had mentioned that in between his showings of these knives, he sometimes had a couple hours and he came in and he had told my husband and I that uh, he had been um, swimming with these two bullies in Mark one and that they were all friends now. And it scared me so bad. I said, oh my gosh, Doug, what are you doing? And Doug didn't like it anytime anybody did have a dispute with him. He was a, a joker and a character and he liked people and people liked him. And so it has happened in the past where there's been, you know, a dispute with somebody and he's made friends with them and all was good. Well, that's what he was doing with these guys. He had been swimming with them and Mark won several different times and thought that he was buddies with them. Now they led him to believe that um, they were all friends and, I said, oh, Doug, I was so scared. And he just held both thumbs up. He said, hey, mom, we're friends. It's all good. So what? And, so I'm sorry, when 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 did you have this conversation? Um, This was uh, just a couple of few days before. And um, this was all like within a week's time of here and over here in the sheriff and stuff, you know. Okay. So now he thinks he's friends with these guys. Okay. So when he started walking home and these guys picked him up, which I find out later, George had let them know that he was walking home. George told me that he had set Doug up. You know, I told you they were friends prior and um, I had ran him off for a while and didn't know that they were hanging out again. But I had seen George after Doug was killed and he told me that he set Doug up, that these guys pretty well um, cornered him and told him, you know, not to give him a ride home or whatever. And he said he didn't think that would work. Doug would probably just buy more gas for him or something, but it did work. Doug started walking home. And so George let these guys know that he was walking. And so they just happened to be right there in his area and picked him up. And like I said, I knew he got in the car willingly because he thought he had made friends with these bullies. So now we've made it through essentially what Karen believes happened to her son. Karen explained more about this interaction with Anderson via messenger after we had the interview. 
She said she saw Anderson at a medical appointment and she approached him and that's when he shared this information. She said he told him that the gas thing was a ruse to get Doug walking alone to where he'd be vulnerable. That doesn't mean Anderson thought Doug was going to be murdered. But we do know from text messages that Doug thought Anderson was mad even before the gas situation became an issue. Doug said in the text that he was super mad and didn't know why. So we've been through the evidence that was investigated. And we have a rough idea of what Carrie believes happened based on her own information. But this story isn't nearly over. Karen Langston was not going to let this go. She was going to continue to push and try to find out what happened to Doug. And as she did, two very bad things happened to her. Just a few months after Doug's death around Thanksgiving, Karen's house burned to the ground. And sometime after that, Karen would be arrested on charges that she held George Anderson against his will. That's a long story for a future episode. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. The Lawless Files is a production of Lead Hound Publishing, LLC. It's hosted and produced by yours truly, Bob Miller. Music by Tyler Grafe. If you have information about this case you'd like to share, please go to our website, www.thelawlessfiles.com, and leave us a tip or find us on Facebook and leave us a message. Coming soon on the Lawless Files. Um, next thing you know, they had just dozed off. They were watching TV together. They had just dozed off, and the house was full of smoke. And uh, they were trying to find their way out. Oh my and gosh! And this—you said this was like three o'clock. It was late in the early in the morning. Right. Right. Yeah, between two and four, sometime. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.